You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together. This morning we turn to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 15. We'll read the first 35 verses, which is also the text for this morning's sermon. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. The news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. And when they finished, James spoke up, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the remnant of men may seek the Lord, so all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God, Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read on the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders of the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. And with them they sent the following letters, the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that someone out from us without our authorization 
and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. The men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. And after spending some time there, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. And Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in the history of the world, there have been particular momentous events that are often called turning points. I think, for example, of June the 6th, a date that we remembered earlier this month, but then June the 6th, 1944, which is known by many of us as D-Day. This year we celebrated the 65th birthday of D-Day. And you can say that D-Day qualifies as one of those great events in the history of our world, and it also qualifies as a turning point. For imagine if the Allied forces had been turned back on the beaches of Normandy. Imagine if Hitler had have prevailed and Nazi Germany had have triumphed. We cannot hardly imagine what that would have done to our world, what that would have done to Europe, what that would have done to peace. No doubt we would be living in a radically different kind of world today, perhaps a world of oppression and subjection. And so there have been many other turning points in the history of our world, as we call that as well. And also not just in the history of the world, but I also think, for example, in the history of various countries, Canada, for example, imagine if we had lost the War of 1812. We probably today would all be Americans. Or imagine if the Americans had lost the War of Independence or the Civil War had turned the other way. And so not only our world, but also all the countries in the world have these turning points in their history. And beloved, what happens in the world and in the countries of this world, you can say, also happens in the church of Jesus Christ. There are these times that we later look back on and we say, that was a real turning point. Imagine if it had gone the other way. Well, beloved, one of those turning points in the Christian church is what you find here in Acts Chapter 15. 
And we're going to turn our attention to these verses of chapter 15 this morning. We won't be able to deal with each and every aspect of this long text, but certainly, hopefully, it's main highlights. So I'd like to preach to you this morning on the following theme, the great Jerusalem turning point. And we're going to look, first of all, at the issue that matters to the church. Secondly, at the spirit who directs the church. And finally, the letter that informs the church. So the great Jerusalem turning point, we'll look at it in terms of the issue, the spirit, and the letter. Well, beloved, as our text opens for us this morning, you can see that it says that some people came down from Judea to Antioch. And they came down because, if you know the geography, you know that Judea is higher than Antioch. And so they went down into the flats. And there these people begin to preach. And that preaching of these people who come from Judea to Antioch is the kind of preaching that causes immediately all manner of controversy and fireworks. We're told that Paul and Barnabas immediately got involved as well. And so, in a matter of moments, the church of Antioch finds itself in all manner of turmoil and unsettlement. What's it about? Well, you can read about that in verse 1. Some men came from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, what's this about? Well, this is about these people saying that something else in addition to Jesus is necessary. And it's, it's not just necessary, but it's vitally necessary. It's absolutely required. Notice, unless, they say, and you cannot be saved. Not saying you might not be, be saved. No, you can't. And, and notice as well, in, in verse 5, you get the same thing. The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. That's what these people were insisting upon. Now, sometimes there are people who come along and insist on what we might consider to be trivial matters. And you can think of any number of things in the church which we might want to call trivial matters, whether or not the elder shakes my hand before and after the service. It's not a matter of biblical demand or confessional insistence. Whether or not when the minister baptizes a baby or someone else, he sprinkles the water one time or three times is not an important matter. Whether or not you use one cup, six cups, or a hundred cups at the Lord's Supper also, in spite of what some people may think, is not an essential matter. There is also in the church of Jesus Christ something which we might call trivia to some extent. You can go one way with it. You can go another way with it. But that's not what's happening here in Acts chapter 15. This is not trivia. 
This goes to the heart and to the essence of the gospel. This goes to the person and to the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is he enough? Or is he not enough? Will he do completely? Or only partially? Now, the people who are saying that circumcision and the law of Moses has to be applied are people whom you can, to some extent, understand. They're, they're Jewish. And, and you know, the church up until now has been predominantly Jewish. Even Pentecost Day was a predominantly Jewish affair. True, people came from all kinds of countries around the Mediterranean, but they were all Jews. Jews speaking different languages. But you know, after that, things slowly began to change. Some of the Jews, some of the priests, even it says converted. Next, some of the Samaritans converted. And then Paul goes on his missionary journey and people, Gentiles in Pisidia, Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Durba begin to convert. And you see it that a trickle becomes a stream and a stream is becoming a mighty flood. And then what? Why, these Jewish believers thought, now we're going to become a minority. We're going to lose control. The tradition of the elders and our past are all going to be eclipsed. And so they said, our identity markers, those things like circumcision, the the ceremonial things of the law, food, clean and unclean, all of these things are going to be shoved aside. And we have to do something. And so they went. They went from Judea to Antioch and they told the believers, look, if you, if you Gentiles want to come into the church of Jesus Christ, that's fine. But just remember, you need to be circumcised, and you need to obey the Mosaic Law, as well as, as, of course, as, as believing in Jesus. That's what they said. But notice, I think Paul and Barnabas understood this, but, but notice Paul and Barnabas will have, have none of this. And right away, they they take on these leaders, they dispute and they debate with them, and they fundamentally disagree. And we're told the result of that disagreement and that great uproar in Antioch is that, that they and others are appointed to go to Jerusalem to the elders and the apostles with this whole question, what's the church of Jesus Christ supposed to do in this Gentile-Jewish controversy. And so they went up. 
And it's nice to know that as they went up, they were greeted and they were embraced and they were welcomed and they got a very warm welcome when they got to Jerusalem. But in spite of all of that, the vital question remains, is faith alone adequate? Faith in Jesus? Or do we need to add circumcision and the law of Moses to the mix? You see, fundamentally, this is all about adding to Jesus Christ. Can you do that? Are you allowed to do that? And then Paul and Barnabas say, absolutely not. You can't do that without denying the complete adequacy of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. You can't do that without destroying the gospel. You can't do that without undermining the foundation of the church of Christ. Because really, this is another gospel. This is a gospel of more. Or as you've heard it before, a gospel of plus. To be saved, you need Jesus plus. A certain style of worship, maybe. Or to be saved, you need Jesus plus a particular kind of lifestyle. Or to be saved, you need Jesus plus, you have to know all the ins and outs of Reformed theology. No, beloved, salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's only an ever in Jesus. And we need to remember that. And we need to apply that. Sometimes when I visit, people say to me, well, I'm a child of God, but I really have trouble believing that my sins, all my sins and trespasses and all the things I've done in my life, I really have trouble believing that all these things have been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, by his sacrifice. And you know, that that gets to the heart of the, the, the same issue. Because when you're expressing those kinds of doubts and reservations, what you're really doing is saying, well, maybe the work of Jesus Christ isn't enough for me. Maybe it's not adequate. This is all about the sufficiency of Jesus. And only Jesus saves. You need to embrace him and you need to see in him a complete, an adequate, a sufficient Savior and Lord. And so, beloved, that was the issue then. I suspect the adequacy of Christ Jesus is still an issue often today. How does the church now respond to this? Well, it's interesting. If you look at the verses 6 to 21 in our text, that's the next part, what you see there is the church turns to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, that's, I reckon and realize, a 
controversial thing, the leading of the Holy Spirit. I read the other day of a lady who went to a, the pastor's house and said to the pastor's wife, the, the Holy Spirit told me to come here. I need to speak to your husband. To which the minister's wife said, well, my, my husband's not home. And to which the woman replied, but the Holy Spirit told me I had to come here. To which the minister's wife said, well, you know, maybe it wasn't the Holy Spirit. Because if it was the Holy Spirit, he would have made sure that my husband was at home. So you see, there's lots of questions about the leading of the Holy Spirit. But I would add that there is really no question about that in our text of this morning. Look at the verses 7 to 11. Peter speaks first to the elders and the apostles in Jerusalem about what the Holy Spirit has already done. Notice in verse 7, he says, After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. What's he referring to? He says God made a choice. What choice? Well, you need to understand that Peter is referring to something that happened in Acts 10 in the household of Cornelius. I think most of you are familiar with that particular story about Peter's reluctance about the cloth that comes down with clean and unclean animals and so forth. And, and, And then in the process, Peter starts preaching and he preaches about Jesus Christ, his Savior and Lord, about his life, his death, his resurrection, and his command to preach the gospel to the nations, to call them to faith, to receive the forgiveness of sins. But then as Peter is preaching, he's interrupted. And it's the Holy Spirit who does the interrupting. Look at chapter 10, verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, verse 44 Chapter 10, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. You know, Peter was just coming to a climax. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit butts in. And that's not all, but look at verse 45. Look what it says there. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. Even on the Gentiles. So when Peter is speaking about a choice in Acts 15, He's referring back to to Acts 10 and what happened in Acts 10. And he's saying, in effect, people, it, it wasn't me. I was just minding my apostolic business. I was preaching the gospel, telling these people about the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he had done for us and for them. And suddenly there was the Holy Spirit and the whole meeting turned upside down. 
And the Spirit came upon these people. And mind you, none of the people that he came upon had ever been circumcised. And none of them were law keepers either. He poured himself on the Gentiles. Well, what kind of conclusion has to be drawn from that? Well, look at Acts 15, the verses 8 and 9. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. And in the original Greek language, that expression, by faith, gets great emphasis. By faith. And that in turn leads to one more conclusion, which you can find in verse 11. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. So what has the Holy Spirit already shown to the church before Acts 15? The Spirit has indicated very clearly that the Gentiles are accepted and acceptable. That there is no longer a distinction between Jew and Gentile. And that it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ alone that all of them are saved. That's the testimony of Peter. Now, you'll notice that after the testimony of Peter, we have the testimony of Paul and Barnabas, who talk about all kinds of things that happened on their missionary trip. And then you have, interestingly enough, after Paul and Barnabas, you have the testimony of James. And James, and that's interesting to know, James is not talking about what the Holy Spirit has done. But James talks about what the Holy Spirit is doing at the present time. And notice, James brings into the picture words from Amos chapter 9, 11, and 12. And he even states that what is happening in the church of Jerusalem at the present time is something that has been predicted by the prophets themselves. You know, Amos predicted that one day God would rebuild the fallen hut or tent of David. And that one day the Gentiles would come flooding into the church of God. In other words, one day the great son of David is going to come. The final son. He's going to do his work on earth. He's going to Suffer, die, be raised, ascend to glory, sit on the right hand of the Father, ruling over everything and everyone. And then the Gentiles will come in, Amos says. The heart of David is going to be rebuilt. 
And James says, that's what's happening today. Jesus has been exalted. He's reigning at the right hand of the Father. The Gentiles are streaming in and the scriptures are being fulfilled. And the Spirit is mightily at work among us. Oh, beloved, do you see the beauty of our text? And you see what it's also saying to us today? It's saying over and over, fix your eyes on Jesus alone. He's enough. He's sufficient. He's more than sufficient for Jew and Gentile. He's more than adequate to all of our needs. Physical, spiritual, emotional, social, what have you. Get over your love affair with Moses. Look to Jesus. The law was given through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so that's the answer of the Jerusalem church. Peter and James, the apostles, the elders. However, our text isn't quite finished. There is one more part to it, and that's the verses 19 to 35. And you know, when you read the verses 19 to 35, they're about the decision that was taken, and they're about the letter that was sent to the believers elsewhere. You've got to wonder... You wonder about whether or not maybe they're tacking some requirements on to salvation after all. Are they perhaps in these last verses of our text adding conditions to the faith? So, okay, is it now the case that you need to believe in Jesus, but in addition to believing in Jesus, you also need to abstain from food polluted by idols? from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. Is that now the case? Is it Jesus alone, or is it Jesus plus these conditions? Well, what we need to understand is that the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem are saying, look it, if you believe in Jesus Christ alone, this is now How are you going to live? How are you going to live your life? And how are you going to deal with certain things? If you look at the list, there are four things in that list, but actually two things are are at stake here. And the first thing has to do with, you know, if you're in Jesus Christ alone, you have to live a distinctive, different kind of life. You just can't carry on the way you used to carry on. Notice it speaks about food polluted by idols and sexual immorality. Well, that's what a lot of them used to do. A lot of the Gentiles would go to the temple, they would partake of the temple feasts, and all the food that was being consumed there was food that had been dedicated to the idols, and it was polluted, spiritually polluted food. 
And not only that, but they would go to the temple and they would seek out the holy whores and make use of them, sexual immorality. And Paul's saying to them, if you're in Christ, that kind of behavior is off limits. No more going to pagan temples, eating pagan food. No more consorting with the whores in the temple. You now belong to Christ. And you know the Apostle Paul makes that point abundantly clear in 1 Corinthians 6 where he says to the believers in Corinth where all of this was really going on as well, you are not your own any longer. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And so in these so-called requirements that flow out of faith in Christ, Paul is saying first to the church, you need to be different. And of course that has implication today. If you come to Christ today, you need to say goodbye to some things. Drunkenness and immoral relationships and greed and all those other kind of things that are so much a part of the unbelieving life today. You need to live a new life in Christ. But you know, there's also something else in these four requirements, and that has to do not so much with being distinctive or different, but that has to do with being considerate and sensitive. Notice, it also talks about the meat of strangled animals and blood. Well, that's a reference to the Jews. And the fact that the Jews were appalled by the fact that the Gentiles would eat this kind of meat of strangled animals and wouldn't bother, as they did, to drain the blood before they ate these animals. You see, Jews and Gentiles are now going to come together. They're going to have to live together in one spiritual house, worship together, fellowship together. And when you do that, when you have that coming together of two quite different backgrounds and cultures, then you also need to be sensitive to one another. So Paul is saying, if you want to have a real church, if you want to have real fellowship together, you can't ride roughshod over the scruples and the reservations and the feelings of your neighbor. To be ignorant, uncaring, and indifferent, and to say, oh, I don't care what those Jewish believers think. I'm going to eat this kind of meat, and I'm going to drink it, blood and all. To do that, they surely ruin the fellowship and the communion of the church. And you know, that mustn't happen. That really, really must not happen. And why must it not happen? Because fellowship is such an important tool to draw people into the church of Jesus Christ. Now, in saying that, I don't want to downplay the importance of doctrine. 
But I do want to say that right doctrine in the church has to be augmented by right fellowship and real caring. In the history of the Christian church, you have all these stories of of unbelievers who came into the church, sometimes as dyed-in-the-wool atheists and real agnostics, and they weren't going to change, and they weren't going to accept Jesus Christ. But the love and the care and the devotion and the sensitivity of the believers was used to melt their hearts and change their minds. And that still has to be the reality today. As a congregation of Jesus Christ that knows it's saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone, we need to show as well the devotion of Christ to those we meet, to those who enter our fellowship, to those whose paths we cross. That's essential. You know, I've worshipped in churches which dress true doctrine and talk a lot about evangelism. Not too often, but from time to time I have. But after the service, no one talked to me. No one greeted me. No one invited me over. I was the invisible man. Probably the only time, but I was really invisible. I've even had occasions where I've stood outside a church after worshiping there and all the people have left and no one said one word to me and everybody was gone And it was just me and back to my hotel I went for a great Lord's Day. Well, not really. Isn't that sad? If you want to negate all the fine talk about doctrine and all the zealous words about evangelism then this is the way to do it. So let's take heed. You know, it's our calling to get the gospel right. But it's also our calling to get the gospel right in the sense of caring and consideration for others. To bring them in so that they too may rejoice and be glad with us in Christ. Let's pray. Almighty God and gracious Father, we thank you for the message of the gospel. We thank you for the complete and utter sufficiency of the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the Savior. And we thank you for the Spirit who so very clearly points to the work of the Savior. And we pray, Father, that we too, as your people, 
might cling to Jesus Christ alone. And clinging to Jesus Christ might live out of him and to him and for him in all that we do. Also in terms of the kind of lives that we live and the kind of witness that we bear. Lord, may our entire lives show how thankful, deeply, deeply thankful we are to you. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.